0: If you ask people to tell you a, a story about a great trip or a great vacation they had, it's extremely unlikely that they will tell you of a trip that went exactly according to plan, even if they're a devotee of Disney holidays, I suspect that that's unlikely. And most of the time, it's that space of uncertainty which creates this sense of possibility. And so. What this made me realize when I was reworking this book was that in a way I'd fallen sort of into the, the mode of thinking that the uncertainty is a thing we struggle to cope with as as human beings. A thing that we kind of have a fault line in our brains about that and we make all these mental backflips and these huge efforts to try and avoid it. And I think there's truth in that. I'm not saying that's not the case, but it's not the whole story. There's this positive side, this necessary side to uncertainty. It's kind of where we live. And so as I was thinking about these ideas again, I kind of reframed it for myself, and it may not be a very visible shift to anyone else, but to me, is a big shift between saying, "Oh, these are these are ideas, this scaffolding that the practices of improvisation allow you, are a, a way to just live right here, right now, in what you've got." Teddy Roosevelt, I think it was, you know, do what you can where you are with what you have, and of course, that's all we ever really have. So there's something quite powerful about that.
1: Greetings future fossils and welcome back to episode 196 of the podcast that explores our place in time. Since 2016 this show has been an offering to help people understand how to navigate liminality and transition in an age of extraordinary uncertainty. It's a way of helping us process, how to improvise, alone and together, in times when, as John Lennon put it, life is what happens while you're making other plans. 2022 in particular was a year that convinced me that the years I spent vagabonding around the country and professionally improvising were effectively a period of intensive preparation, And I mean, in some sense, it's always been on my mind that we're moving deeper and deeper into a world that rewards those who can flock, who can pilot a starship through an asteroid field, who can listen with their intuition and make sudden and spontaneous decisions that may only make sense In retrospect, or may never make sense at all. But given the tempo of the changes that we have faced this year, I'm looking forward into 2023 and feeling very good about emphasizing improvisation to an even greater degree and placing an even larger emphasis on the importance of this work, even as the question of long-term planning comes into focus and asserts itself with even more urgency. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to the mind and the heart of my friend Robert Poynton, whom I met through our mutual friend Chris Kutarna a few years ago and who teaches improvisation To people in the business world And who wrote an absolutely poetic and beautiful book Called Do Improvise That sells people you might consider square On the value of learning to depart from script Listen more deeply Make creative use of absolutely everything life throws us It's really a spiritual practice And... I see Robert as a kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi in that regard. Someone whom I listen to very closely when it comes to these things. And someone that I'm immensely grateful to know and grateful I get to share with you. But first, I want to thank everyone who continues to help me make this show possible. Conversations like these are not easy to fund because most funding demands some kind of clear understanding of the value that's actually being created here. A specific outcome and an embrace with the fundamental mystery of our reality is <laughs> sort of in direct philosophical opposition to that paradigm, at least on the first pass at the simplest level of analysis. Of course, if you go a little deeper, what could be more important in the biggest frame and on the longest timeline than learning to embody and enact evolutionary intelligence, which is the very paragon of improvisation? But I digress. The point is, I want to thank everyone who is helping future fossils. Special thanks to the latest Patreon supporters Jamie Curcio, who was a guest in our last episode, very excellent episode. Kristen Smith, David Lowenfels, MC Otter, Aaron McCarthy, Kaza, and Laura Cochran. Thank you all. And thanks to the other 251 Patreon supporters. That puts us just over halfway to my goal for 2023 of 500 paid supporters, which, by the way, is still only one-sixth of the number of active participants in the Future Fossils patrons-only Facebook group. So, everybody who is chipping in on this show every month, you are not only helping me, but you are also subsidizing... The 90 plus percent of free writers who benefit from the very active and intelligent daily discussions going on in that forum. So I thank you not only as a proxy for my children, but as a proxy for the herd of cats that makes the conversations that we facilitate here about so much more than is simply going on in these episodes. It means the world to me that I and they have your support. Lastly, thanks also to everyone who has been reviewing and rating this show on Apple Podcasts. Ultimately, as much as I don't like this, the success of a podcast is a numbers game. So every little thing that everyone's been doing to make this show more visible, deeply appreciated. It's a ton of work, including work put in on this very episode by my father-in-law, Kevin Taylor. Big thanks to Kevin. And with that, I've kept you long enough. Please kick back and enjoy this fabulous, soulful conversation with Robert Poynton. Tell me about your day. Morning doing
0: accounts. At home back here in Spain. I came back from Oxford on Friday. My wife was away. Well, she was with me on Friday and then went away. And my son sleeps in, the one who's here. So spent the morning doing something I'd been meaning to do for a long time. And a friend of mine talks about having bookkeeping mind. And it's a bigger point actually it's also about how if you can catch yourself in the right mood to be doing the thing that you need to be doing then everything flows and I deliberately chose to do it on a Sunday because I really hate doing my accounts I'm really hard to concentrate and it's not a big thing I don't have very many accounts (laughs) but somehow it assumes this huge scope in my head and the other thing I find difficult about it is when I do that I inevitably uncover things I haven't looked at or trying to download this invoice requires me checking this thing and then I have to refer back to a bank account. So it sort of, it kind of opens all these, not Pandora's boxes, but Pandora's windows perhaps. And and yet today it felt like that's okay. That's what we're doing here this morning. And so as always happens when I can find the right state of mind, I settled into it and quite enjoyed it actually and, and didn't quite finish, but that's okay. And then Bear came home at lunch and we cooked and she and I and Pablo had lunch outside, which is still possible here. And then it rained for 10 minutes, which is a delight always. You live in a dry part of the world. I'm sure you can connect with that. You say that to English people and they're like, yeah, <laughs> what? <laughs> <You
1: know?
0: laughs> so yeah, that's been the day so far.
1: Interesting. So again, with the morning light and the evening light after this I'm going to work on my taxes. (laughs) So we're not that different, you and I. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Death and taxes, eh?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, indeed. Indeed. In fact, actually, I should just not to make this episode about this at all, but as a token of appreciation to my friend Adam Allen Boss, who runs Nightlight Astrology and recently made comments about the aspects being especially about learning to lose or die gracefully this Hmm. couple months. Not just a seasonal thing. We have an opportunity to watch presumably inflation, and geopolitically complicated things unfold and just be at peace with the unbuckling of it all. But that is not what I have come to speak to you today about because your publishers so generously sent me this book and I love it. And it's interesting Because as a career improviser, you showed me how to think about improvisation in a completely different way. And that's what I want to explore with people today. So, first, Rob Poynton, how do you introduce yourself to strangers, most of whom are probably very intelligent, creative, not your typical audience? They, I imagine, are because this is a two-way conversation, right? They are, the listeners that we're intensely aware of right now are brilliant and interested in you, but yes, exquisitely strange and mischievous people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I kind of,
0: by way of introduction, I don't find the conventional categories or labels very helpful. So I think it's interesting to talk about, as I look back over my life, what my intention has been. That's kind of an intention that I give to make sense to something afterwards, rather than perhaps being the intention I held at the time. And then a little bit about kind of the nature of the things I do. So I think, you know, one of my intentions has also been to explore how things happen. I think it's kind of as simple as that. And and the role of kind of playfulness or a kind of mischievous spirit, if you like, within that and I kind of built on a conviction that there has got to be a there's got to be an easier way than just pushing. First thing I did once I left university was join an ad agency because it kind of seemed like fun and because it's like well, they we're going to be producing ideas and where do those come from and how do they come about? So I think that's always been kind of at the core of it. And what I actually do, I think the way I think about it now is create spaces or bring groups of people together to have conversations will make discoveries or learn things that they wouldn't otherwise learn so i'm kind of i suppose the modern term would be a, like a experienced designer but a, a curator of spaces online and in person but with that same intention of having having unexpected stuff happen mostly kind of learning or discoveries so yeah that's how i that's how i think of myself i guess these days
1: how did you find that though How did you find your way into it? If you did get to this in the book, I didn't get to that part.
0: No, I don't really talk about that in the book. I mean, to improvisation, I found myself like the way I find my way to everything, kind of through serendipity, I suppose. And by being awake and alert to something. So that there is, it's not that there's nothing I do. I suppose my path through life has been driven as much by the rejection of things as by the embrace of them, if you like. And that's quite powerful saying, I know it's not this, or I move away from something into a space where something else might happen. So the path to understanding or tumbling across improvisation was, funnily enough, complexity theory. And I realized this just recently. I was thinking about this very question. I realized, oh, yeah, the first time the whole of the sciences of complexity came across my mind was in a presentation somebody gave about catastrophe theory. And then after that, it led to complexity. And then I got very interested in, kind of felt like somebody learning a foreign language who could understand a fair amount, but could just about order a beer in a bar. You know, it just kind of didn't really work for me. And then I, by chance, came across a guy called Gary Hirsch, who I met by a T-shirt from, because he's an artist as well. But as it happens, I'd just been doing a talk at Nike in somebody else's place, actually. And I'd been given this very difficult brief where they said, well, you'd better be funny. And the only way I knew to be funny was to take bits of film I knew were funny. And so I took, amongst other things, lots of bits of whose lines. Anyway, so when I met this guy who's an artist to talk about a T-shirt, he mentions by way of introduction, oh, I do improv theatre as well. And I said, well, how does that work? And in the very first blush, the very first few things he said, I could immediately see that this was the same set of patterns as what i'd been fumbling around with in a very amateur way through the kind of lens of of the science of complexity so we started to work together and i think you were saying earlier about how as a lifelong improviser some of the stuff that you came across in the book helped you understand it and i think that kind of makes sense in a way because you know there's a level of capacity and of uh, ability we have which becomes unconscious so if you're a skilled and accomplished improviser in whichever artistic medium, you, you're probably just able to do it and not necessarily aware of how you do it. So myself as an outsider coming to it didn't have that facility, but also what I was interested in was how do you take and apply these ideas out with the theater in particular. And so that kind of forces you to think about it consciously and to articulate things in a particular way that is kind of simple and approachable and playful and enjoyable. For people who perhaps have no interest whatsoever in theater, but are curious about how they organize themselves or how things actually happen or how to deal with the mess that is everywhere and I think that 's a very, very big theme for me. this idea of my my experience of being a human being has always been irregular and ragged and messy and serendipitous and kind of joyful and painful in complicated ways and I studied psychology and philosophy at university and psychology in particular at that time in that place did not speak to me in any way that connected with my experience of living a human life. So I was kind of deeply depressed. It was an august institution. So I assumed that there must be something wrong with me. And that was what initially had driven the inquiry into complexity theory, because I always think of complexity as the kind of science of everyday life, the science of the messiness, the science of not the lab, not the controlled uh, environment but that which we experience in all its glory and and so when those kind of came together there was a sort of extraordinary awakening for me and i think it's that outsiderness which has also been another quality of my experience i spent most of my life living in a country that's not the one i was born in and i i'm always kind of outside looking in and toing and throwing and that kind of ability to to see things in a world that you can't necessarily see if you're steeped in it and if you're skillful in it so yeah that's kind of been the the role I've played or the path I've trodden, kind of uh, translator, I suppose, in some in some respects.
1: To your point about coming in through catastrophe theory, that you talk about how improvisation is normally regarded as a last resort, is what you do when all else fails. It is often regarded as a sign of failure. As filmmaker David Keating says, in our industry, improvisation is a dirty word. And then elsewhere, you also say, life is a giddy torrent for which nobody has a script. The relationship with improvisation and complexity has always been there, I guess. It strikes me that in a symphony orchestra, there is no improvisation. Everyone's reading from the same music. But if the music is changing fast enough, and you have to give up the pages and listen to each other. And at some point then there's another bound where if you cross that bound, you cross into chaos and you might as well just be rolling dice or something because you can't adequately predict, but that's inimitable to human life. So to your point about this is where we live, the messy place in the middle there. If you take... Whose line is it
0: anyway? Or improv theater. What you see people doing there, in some sense, looks like magic. These people seem to be able to read each other's minds or to know what comes before it happens or to connect things in a way that must mean surely they knew what was going to happen. And what was really interesting to me about this was none of those things are true. That may be the apparent result, but people who are skilled on stage achieve. Those results by this practice of some very simple pieces of behavior, largely through what they pay attention to and how they pay attention and how they work and use what other people are giving. And so, what you have there is an example of sense and meaning. It's not chaotic, it's not random, has this sort of magical lightness to it. And I think. You know, I spent a long time thinking about and observing what is it people respond to in a theatre in an improv audience or in a workshop for that matter. And they're rarely responding to something that is intrinsically funny. They're actually responding to the nature of the process. There is something so deeply pleasing about seeing people not just work this way together, but be this way together, to take and give and accept and connect that we express that pleasure through laughter because it's so joyful. There's a difference, I think, between something being joyful and something being funny. So that kind of apparent or seeming magic that is possible on the stage is in some ways an illusion because it doesn't happen through the things that we imagine are needed. And so the promise, therefore, when I first came across it was like, how do you do that? How can I get that in my everyday life? How can I get this feeling of, Of flow, how can I get this feeling of kind of effortless creation? And what is it that these people are doing on the stage, which for me is, is I think of it as a laboratory. It's a place where you get to try stuff out and get feedback and invent language and notice kind of what's going on that you can then take and use somewhere else. And that's been the work, and I'm still in it. You know, it's not like I've kind of got this down. I've got a, a model, you know, and as George Box famously said, all models are wrong and some of them are useful, and hopefully this is a useful one which can enable you to, it can kind of act as scaffolding, you know, that holds you in place while you kind of interact with other people. And that doesn't have to be in the theater. That can be with your family at home. It could be at work. And the same promise, I think, of this kind of seemingly effortless flow. I mean, I qualify this the effort there because it's not that no effort is required. It's not that anything goes. It's there's, there's much more interesting constraint in the world of effective improvisation. So it's seemingly effortless. It's, let's say, a different kind of effort. It's a care and attention rather than a kind of pushing and a forcing, perhaps. And done well and done repeatedly. And by the way, it's very compassionate practice because you can forget to do it and start again anytime you like. I do that the whole time. So it's not kind of something you have to be wedded to. You can, you can pick it up and put it down as, as you see fit. But it can enable you to generate flow and create new ideas in this kind of graceful way. And the internal experience of so doing is very different, I think, because it's there's a lightness to it, and I don't mean the lightness of, of humor, I mean the lightness of what I perceive as the way nature works, you know where things just kind of fit and connect and flow and beget each other, and the dung beetle feeds off the excrement of another creature, everybody you know all waste is food that, that that's the kind of dominant mood I think when an improvisational process is unfolding fruitfully so yeah I think that's that's always held to me great promise it connects with what I said earlier about you know wanting to find ways where a kind of a way of life a way of work which is kind of not easy necessarily but where there is ease and where there is delight those are all the words that kind of come to me and I think that you know we misread things I think we think that control is a prerequisite uh, when in actual fact it's, in my view, an impossibility, I mean, it depends exactly how you use that word perhaps, but, you know, we we lavish time and attention, trying to control things that always kind of are beyond our grasp. Other people, for example, or small children or people that work for us or with us will never do what we want them to or what we expect them to. And why should they in the same way that we don't for other people? So instead of seeing that as a kind of failing or an error, then, then this way of thinking and working invites you to kind of, well, how can I take and use that? And if I go back to the stage, that doesn't mean to say you've got no goal or intention or that, like I say, anything goes, far from it. You know, improvising in the theatre, this laboratory, as I think of it, still have an audience to please, an audience who can leave instantly or never come back or at least switch off in their minds invisibly. So they're very demanding circumstances. There's a the very high demand, and yet they can somehow work in a way that keeps people there and keeps them engaged and keep on doing it. So that's that promise, I think, is um, is one that's well worth pursuing.
1: So, in that, you reminded me that one of the fractal faculty members of the Santa Fe Institute, Stuart Feierstein, biologist at Columbia University in New York, is writing a book and gave a talk earlier this year on uncertainty. I guess his first two books were Ignorance and Failure. He really loves this stuff. He's arguing that uncertainty is the basis, actually, it's required for philosophical optimism. Because you have to assume that things can be different,
0: yeah, completely.
1: There's an openness, there's a potential there. And again, you know, to get back to this catastrophe and disruption, you say improvisers prepare, but they prepare a territory, not a path. And I find this very interesting because just earlier this week, I was listening to Weird Studies podcast, my friends Phil Ford and J.F Mortel. And they were talking about fantasy novels like The Lord of the Rings and how there are instances of world building that are what they call ergodic texts that are more about laying out the space. And then mm. allowing the space to populate itself rather than to drive the whole thing with a story where, as science fiction is often accused, the characters are basically facades. They're plot points disguised as people. And instead, you have this, this other thing. It's about there being two different strategies, but it's improvisation at different timescales, I would argue, and yeah. you know, when you talk about like the sixth day of creation, right? <laughs> like the ergotic text of this world is one that might seem non ergodic if you zoom out far enough. But at any rate, what I wanted to ask you about was this thing about the terrain to call on Lord of the Rings, the you know, not all who wander are lost, mm. that the wandering is something that people do in the wake of a disruptive event. And I'm curious about your work because as you note several times in the onboarding phase of this book, improvisation is seen often as something that happens when plans fail. And so it's not enshrined by society as it often reflects poorly on someone because we have our heads wrong about this, you know, that Yeah. I think there's like shame or something involved. <laughs> yeah. The bouquet here is one of like being displaced or marginal or fugitive and the movement and the stuff like oh I just got a divorce, I guess I'm just going to go backpacking around the world. These kinds of moments. I don't know. That's the riff. Yeah, well there's 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 plenty in there. So I think a very
0: close friend uh, of mine, Nick Barker, once said to me, your work's really about recovering improvisation from the pejorative. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. And I agree with what you said there, that I think that we have our heads wrong about this. And I would add, actually, that I think many of the proponents of improvisation, many of whom care ardently about it and advocate it ceaselessly, also have their heads wrong about it. Because it's not that improvisation is any kind of Replacement or answer or substitute for a planned or organized or structured way of thinking. It's that it's a necessary complement. And so we need both. The plan is never complete. There's always data we can't anticipate. And in the act of doing our plans, the data and the circumstance will change anyway. So that doesn't mean to say you should give up planning, but it means to say that you should hold the plan lightly and understand its limitations and simultaneously understand the need for the capacity to adapt and respond creatively, which is another way of describing improvisation. You kind of see this everywhere. So absolutely, we have our heads wrong. I thought that comment of Nick's was was a kind of interesting one. I hadn't thought of it like that before myself. But I do, I do think you kind of need both so that the house I'm sitting in, which is in rural Spain you know, when we started building this house, I assumed, as it would make sense to do, and as most people would, that that was not about improvisation at all. How could you improvise, or why would you improvise, with an expensive, literally kind of material structure governed by complex and demanding regulation at every point of the process? But of course, in this fractal way, like you described, yes, that's all true, and you do need to fulfil all of those plans. But along the way, you know, the weather changes or the land's not quite where you thought it was, or the materials don't arrive, or there's incompleteness in the plan. And so what I discovered through this very kind of tangible process, a really important stage for me, was this need for both. And that if you just had the plan, you would never finish anything. And if you never had a plan, you would never start anything. So we had to flex and respond to circumstances that we couldn't predict or control but in two modes as well one is to solve problems you know so the land slopes in a way that didn't show up in the original measurements that were made and so then you kind of you have to find a way to adjust for that and make the structure still work but on the other hand there are unseen opportunities that weren't visible from the desk of the computer designer who was rendering the drawings So the view from the scaffolding, which led to a piece of raised garden, for example. And so there's this kind of symbiotic kind of relationship between the two. And I think the advocates of both as a singular answer are kind of mistaken or missing something. It's just that there are more people that in our society kind of just assume that the way to get things done or the way to do things well is to do ever more planning and be ever more structured. But you need this kind of, you need this interplay. And so things have changed for me since then. I, the book that you're holding there is the, is the new edition of a book I originally wrote 10 years ago. And I think at the time I wrote that, I was still slightly subject to that way of thinking myself. So that uh, not explicitly, kind of implicitly, I'm, I'm sort of offering these ideas from a still as a way to get through the mess. When I was rewriting it last year, or earlier this year, I suppose, I'd been influenced uh, or let's say my some of my thinking had been thrown into new relief by Margaret Heffernan, and podcast I heard with her where she talked about a thought experiment I think suggested by Gigerenza, about how if you could plan and know in advance, I'm getting back to uncertainty here, if you, if there were no uncertainty and you knew exactly what you'd do for the rest of your life, day by day, you know, meal by meal, hour by hour, who you'd meet, what you'd talk to them about, all that kind of stuff, if you did have the complete thorough and total script for your life, then uh, as she rather sweetly says, that would reduce life to the process of waiting for the train, that all of what we actually value or much of what we value most, let's say, in life comes from that space of uncertainty. So it's in uncertainty that creativity lies, obviously by definition, because if we already had the idea, then how would it be creative? But also a sense of making a difference, of agency and identity, of joy and delight, surprise, all of these things depend upon there being uncertainty. If you ask people to tell you a, a story about a great trip or a great vacation they had, it's extremely unlikely that they will tell you of a trip that went exactly according to plan even if they're a devotee of Disney holidays, I suspect that that's unlikely. And most of the time, it's that space of uncertainty which creates this sense of possibility. And so what this made me realize when I was reworking this book was that, in a way, I'd fallen sort of into the, the mode of thinking that that the uncertainty is a thing we struggle to cope with as, as human beings, a thing that we kind of have a fault line in our brains about that, and we make all these mental backflips and these huge efforts to try and avoid it. And I think there's truth in that. I'm not saying that's not the case, but it's not the whole story that there's this positive side, this necessary side to, to uncertainty. It's kind of where we live. And so as I was Thinking about these ideas, again, I kind of reframed it for myself, and it may not be a very visible shift to anyone else, but to me is a big shift between saying, oh, these are these are ideas, this scaffolding, as I called it earlier, that, that the practices of improvisation allow you, are a, a way to just live right here, right now in what you've got. Teddy Roosevelt, I think it was, you know, do what you can where you are with what you have. And, of course, that's all we ever really have. So there's something quite powerful about that. And no, it's not necessarily just making it up or winging it. That's what was interesting to me in the first place. There is structure, there is pattern here. It's not random, it's not chaotic. Improvisers do prepare. And what I meant by preparing a territory, not a path, is that you're not trying to force the world to submit to that narrow set of possibilities you yourself have defined in advance. You're open to all that is coming at you and able to act in Advance of knowing what will come, but in a sort of spirit or in a manner which is likely to bring about perhaps unexpected but fruitful kind of results to connect simple things together and make something new to give a, a very obvious example and I think this is really interesting because I think if I offer a critique of the planned way of thinking about things, this is sort of extension of the kind of waiting for the train idea you know, most of what's happened in my life, most of the work I've done, I couldn't possibly imagine. So I couldn't, by definition, have planned it because I couldn't have even imagined it was possible. I couldn't have imagined it was possible to meet somebody like yourself at the Santa Fe Institute and do the kinds of things we've done together and meet the people in common that we've met and be stimulated in the way that I have been by by your work. I couldn't have imagined that. So yes, the human imagination is an extraordinary thing, but it's also incredibly limited. And One could describe the act of planning as forcing yourself to only allow those possibilities you can imagine in advance. And that's a very much smaller set of possibilities than those which actually exist. So it seems to me slightly perverse to want to do that. You know, I have people I've known, I expect we all have, whose lives have panned out exactly as they thought and hoped. But in some cases, that means that you are subject to the whims of a 19 year old at university who's decided in advance what they're going to do. And then the (laughs) rest of your life is spent in achieving the goals that you've achieved. But as I am thinking of a couple of people in particular, they didn't seem to be made very happy or satisfied or fulfilled or excited by delivering on the plan. You know, because again, there's something about our natures which is that as soon as we've reached somewhere kind of the eyes lift and we look on somewhere else and it's about the journey not the destination all those cliches so for me yeah this learning to see uncertainty as part of us as sort of a source of joy as well as a source of difficulty and ever was it thus I think if you look at all the great stories and the way that culture and science talk about everything paradox is always there isn't it you've always got the yin and yang you've always got the wave and the particle you've always got these kind of pairs of paradoxical relationships kind of playing out so it makes sense to me I can't go any further than that but it just intuitively makes sense to me that uncertainty is going to be both these things and that we somehow got completely hooked on one way of trying to deal with it which is useful up to a point and then has massively diminishing returns. Firestein you mentioned earlier you know the, the work on failure you know I have this debate with other friends who work with improvisational ideas and you know there's two ways that we tend to look at it. One is there is no failure. Every failure is also an opportunity, which can sound slightly pollyanna ish But I just prefer not to use the term at all. I kind of just think about well everything's something you can take and use. And failure or success are relative terms which are local to time and place and all those Zen stories about, you know, the next day everything changes anyway. So what looked like bad luck is now good luck and so on it goes.
1: Yeah. So I have to ask because it makes perfect sense what you do to me. And yet, reading your work and knowing that you are a fellow at the business school at Oxford, and I think back on a conversation I had with my cousin, my father's brother's daughter in 2016, I think. And at the time she was living in Berlin and she was working for an ad agency that was advising the BMW group. And she told me that BMW has a department of internal disruption. And I said, my God, how can I get involved in that? How can I find without going to Berlin a company that is wise enough to integrate in the way that, was it Jung who said that everything that you see as other becomes fate? At any rate, this notion of having levers, not ownership exactly, but of engagement, of participation, involvement, Mm -hmm. the ability to tango with uncertainty, seems less so maybe than it was 20 years ago, but nonetheless still exceptionally rare. And I'm just curious if this is just because of my woefully impoverished experiences as an adult of navigating in these spaces. But it seems like what you do going into companies, big estimable brands and doing this work, it just seems like the most important thing ever. And yet, for all the reasons that you've mentioned already, it seems like it's cutting against the script in a way, or like, One way of thinking about it is like a wizard is rarely welcome because the wizard showing (laughs) up in your town means something magical is about to happen. So I'm curious about that particular piece of this, how natural it was. I mean, I guess you came into this from business. So it's- Sure.
0: Yeah. So this this is kind of my temporal path in, but I I may come back to that. But to kind of go straight to the core of the question, I think that what you see is that, so I agree that it's less- rare than it was 20 years ago. It's about the time I've been doing it. But it's still very much in a minority, very much goes against the grain. And normally it depends upon one or other of two things. So exceptional individuals who may be in significant positions of kind of power or influence, or you know, maybe budget holders, they may be looking after projects or even whole organizations where they just intuitively understand some of this stuff. So when they come across you, however they do, There's a very quick meeting of minds and they can kind of connect with it. And so that's kind of one way it comes across. That was how the work at Oxford began through meeting one of those individuals, I would say, because in this sense, the university and the business school is itself such a leviathan. So it's just one example more of these kind of big organizations. The university has a slight difference from corporate context in that I always think of Oxford University as a coral reef you know, it's full of these kind of thousands of little niches that you can inhabit. And most of the time, you sort of left to your own devices if you don't upset too many people. So it can tolerate quite a lot of not just ambiguity, but contradiction, actually, if you look within departments or disciplines, there are plenty of academics who completely disagree with each other about fundamental things in their in their field, and the university is big enough to hold both of them. I and mean, of course, I'm nowhere near uh, an academic, let alone a serious one. So I'm kind of on the lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe. But an organization like that has this kind of capacity to allow for the liminal spaces, the edges, all, all that kind of stuff. But in business organizations, there's another couple of options. So there's sort of a scale of ways that you can engage with this work. And some of them are what you might call the proto-theatrical. And this is how it began for me. This is where the the kind of my path in sort of began. It was easy in the earlier days or easier to get design companies or creative companies, or as I would more normally say, companies that thought of themselves as creative, to uh, engage you in the spirit of, oh, this will help us be more creative to some degree or other, or to help with very obvious things like communication or presentation skills or things like that, which of course are the most trivial and the least interesting aspects of this work. So you can come through kind of through that door. And then sometimes what you find is these, as I say, inspirational individuals who can really see that this is in many ways challenging very deeply the whole edifice of the way the corporation is structured and the way people think about it. And they are capable on occasion of carving out, uh, if you like, sort of sub ecosystems, areas, bounded areas within which a different set of understandings and sometimes rules apply, different relationships are able to be made. There are different flows of power and they'll often be the kind of clients that will work with you over a period of time and use this kind of work in many different ways to go way beyond the reasons that they may be using to their superiors or their budget holders to justify doing it. And you're kind of working as it were, as a sort of double agent, actually. Because I think 20 years in, I have kind of reached the conclusion that a lot does need to collapse, I think. You know, this edifice of of structure and goals is so tightly bound that there is little room for genuine creativity. That's why I qualified the description I gave of companies a moment ago as companies that think of themselves as creative. To be truly creative, you have to ask bigger and deeper and far more far-reaching questions than many of them are willing to ask so i think that there needs to be some kind of collapse and and regeneration i've become somewhat allergic to using it in the ways that i described earlier as kind of trivial and superficial because i think in a way it's just putting that day off that so there is quite a kind of revolutionary spirit i suppose in my mind and heart these days because, yeah, I think we just need to, we really, really need to redress the balance. And it's its not like I'm so anti it. It's just, I think that I see it just really harming people. You know, I think that people are working ever harder for, you know, under ever more stress with ever retreating kind of rewards or, you know, with no rest with context. They're not treated in the old days. If you kept your nose clean at a company, you'd be there and get a gold watch and that'd be that. And that doesn't happen anymore you know so i think it's painful on that on that level i think it doesn't do companies justice i think there's far more vibrant creative generative value making ways of being and working that would actually help companies make if that's what they're really interested in, more money as well. And of course, making more money is perhaps the least interesting things companies do. They could make a lot more meaning if they thought about things differently. And then I think on a planetary level, this way of kind of controlling and extracting and squeezing and pushing is not solely, but is uh, maybe a cause, maybe an effect of the kind of damage we're doing on a planetary level. So that's all a bit pompous and grandiose, but it's kind of how things connect together for me.
1: So... The Remora on the Shark of that question <laughs> is how do you actually sell this to an organization? Because it seems like an easier sell now than it was for all the reasons you said, but like at the same time, it's uncomfortable. And yet something that I love about your book is that I need to connect your book to Steven Nakmanovich's free play. Are you familiar with that one at all? I haven't read it. I know know the title well but I haven't read it. No. So, Nakmanovich, interesting weird five-string violinist. He's written another book, The Art of it Is that I'm working through right now. He's another one of these people that sees improvisation and composition as being one thing at two levels of granularity. Spoke a lot about the unrecorded Beethoven improvisations that legend has it made people weep in the audience. Yeah, there's just something so natural and sane about the way that you think about this stuff that it strikes me that it makes it less difficult to sell because yeah. you're just helping them exfoliate and unpack and <laughs> well, be more of
0: what they are. Exactly. I, think, I mean, that's the place increasingly I start. I mean, just as an aside on the classical musical thing, many years ago I I met a flautist, a Danish flautist, and I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting because she's going to completely disagree with everything I say about improvisation. Not at all. She and I are close friends now, and it's partly because it's exactly, uh, my understanding of it is, is it's just how you say, is that a different level of magnification, a classical musician who is playing with life, is working in this way. It doesn't mean to say they're playing different notes, but at a different level of magnification beyond the level at which I or a non-professional classical musician could probably hear, there are similar kind of dynamics going on and she could contrast that with people who, uh, as she jokingly calls it, go to the factory, which are the people who have day jobs in, a, in an orchestra who kind of phone it in, uh, phone it in in a way that would meet acclaim from even the classical music listening public. but you know, at her level of scrutiny there's a different thing going on. So I think it's I think there's at least a suggestion there that these two levels or different levels you're talking about is still true. In terms of kind of how you start that conversation, yeah, it's really interesting. I think when I began, I would start by appealing to the obvious benefit. Oh, you'll get more creative, or here's how you you become, you know, more effective at presenting or at fielding questions and answers. I don't really do that anymore for the reasons some of the reasons I outlined earlier, but also because I think it's there's a much more interesting way to do it, which is absolutely connected to what you commented on there, which is like, we're already doing this, all right? This is not strange. If you're a living human being, you're improvising, nobody has a script. And so instead of making people wrong for what they're doing, you can just sort of invite them to consider that there might be another string they can add to their bow so the simplest way i've found to do it is really through three direct questions you just say to a group of people or this could be a rhetorical question in a in a conversation in email but effectively, you say you just ask them are you improvising and normally people stop to think about it and almost always after a little bit of reflection they'll kind of go perhaps somewhat reluctantly they'll kind of go well yeah i suppose you know not everything i do is predetermined. I mean, if you do this, depending on the context in which you do this, you get kind of different speed of response and a different openness to it. But even in a very stultifying kind of corporate suited environment, it only takes a few seconds for everybody to kind of go, yeah, okay. At which point I'll normally say something like, well, that's good. Because if you didn't put your hand up there, or if you didn't say yes to that, then you're dead. So again, you can use levity and humor. And then the second question I'll ask is, and, and how important is that ability to, and here I'll start to not use the word improvisation, which is loaded for many people and understandably so, you know, how important is it in, in your work or in your life to be able to flex, adapt, respond, be agile, you know, all those things. And immediately people start to generate examples where they can see it's really important. Even if it's something like, you know, oh yeah, when the client changes their mind, then we have to improvise. Uh, and then the third question is: How much time or energy have you spent either in your schooling or in your education or in your continuous professional development? How much time, energy, money, or attention have you devoted to developing this ability? To which, with a few exceptions, the answer is almost always zero or close to zero. The few exceptions, by the way, tend to be people from the military, which is itself interesting. And then once you've got those three questions, you kind of go, "Okay, great. So here's this thing that you're, you know, that you're doing already that actually turns out to be quite important that you haven't spent much time working on." So should we work on it a bit then? You know, and that's kind of quite hard to argue with. You know, <laughs> you've got to be really really convinced this is a, you know, that your time is better spent doing something else to say no to that. And I think when you appeal to people in that way, not by presenting, not by being too in love with your own ideas or your own discipline, but but just by being invitational by observing that this is part of everyday life and just sort of naming that for them, then it's a lot easier to to come on board and to not be threatening as well by not saying, you're not suggesting this means you give up planning, you know, and there's tons of military examples I use, which I'm all slightly wary of because it feels so morbid, but I think... It is very interesting talking to US Navy SEALs about this, as I have, or to F-15 pilots about how all this fits in, in in their world. So yeah, so when you present it not as an alternative, in the military they say that no plan survives first contact with the enemy or the first casualty of the war is the plan or plans are proof that planning has been done, which is a good thing to have if you're asking people to risk their life and limb. And so there's examples like you know military planners in combat anyway don't not plan. They just plan faster. They plan iteratively. They accept that the plan won't last very long, but the point is not the plan. And so then they kind of, again, move, adapt, change, get information in, all that kind of stuff. So you can furnish examples like that from unlikely fields that also open up people who think, well, I'm an accountant, how could this possibly apply to me? If it turns out, well, actually the military are quite conversant with this way of thinking, which by the way, they've incorporated into their doctrine because sense and response is a very great contrast to command and control. And you know that's something recognized and established in the military world so
1: i think at this point we've made it damn near an hour without actually explicating your advice which is as you say in this the practice can be summed up in six words they are notice more let go use everything And I just want to thank you for bringing it all into such pristine focus. I've been thinking about expanding my awareness, mindfulness, and acceptation to be able to co-opt that which lies around. I have this thought that every idea is an acceptation. Every adaptation is an acceptation, that we're not doing anything other than that constantly. Ooh, but that's yeah, interesting. it's like it's so beautiful to see it's like you're not writing math, but you're <laughs> writing in parsimonious code. <laughs> to me, what seems like the prompt for all of evolutionary biology and everything else as well. Yeah, I love
0: the word use of the word prompt. I've not thought of it like that before, but I think that's exactly what it is is a prompt. So those statements, or you can frame them as questions, you know, which some people prefer. So, you know, what else could I notice or what am I not noticing? Uh, What could I let go of or what assumptions am I holding or, you know, what can I release and what have I got so that I could take and do something with those are prompts. They're not in any sense kind of answers or formulae. And, And I remember I was asked recently about where this model came from. And of course it's very hard to dredge back in your memory, but there is a particular moment i remember when it all kind of came together and love that you used the word pristine at that point i think i was i mean there's plenty more things you could put on such a diagram and i think what i realized was actually simplicity is the most helpful thing here and instead of kind of feathering my own nest by saying well there's these first principles and then these other 16 and then these other things and building this kind of complex and probably hierarchical model and distinguishing between practices and principles just this idea of this kind of simple set of interlocking notions that act as prompts so that in any situation, when stuck, and even if you haven't done it for years, if, like I said earlier, you've forgotten all about this, you know, and you're stuck or you're at a loss or you're confused or, or the opposite, you're excited, whatever, you can say, you say well, what else? What, what can I let go of here? Or uh, if you don't feel like you've got anything, you ask yourself, what could I take and use? And then you have to say, well, let me notice what I've got. And so they all kind of flow into each other in a very elegant way where none of them is primary. And that kind of simplicity and cleanliness, I think, kind of makes them – I remember thinking after I'd developed for a while, I thought, oh, I wonder what the next chapter is. Then I kind of thought, there is no next chapter. That's it. You know, the, what provides the nextness, the novelty, if you like, is the meeting a new context. So the novelty is, is infinite because in every context, in every moment, you can go back to the beginning, start again, ask yourself – one or other of these questions whichever one comes to mind and so that to me seems tremendously powerful and I think on reflection I think I was influenced by again looking at the lab of the theatre and knowing by this stage quite well some quite accomplished performers and thinking well what are they actually doing and like I said earlier they're not Perhaps very conscious of what they're doing, but what certainly what they're not doing is they're not making elaborate plans. They're not seeking to remember lots of things. Essentially, they're doing something with their attention. They're looking and noticing what they've got around them. They are not categorizing things in an immediate and familiar way. So the lights fail. They don't see it as failure. They see it as darkness. So they go, Oh, and they'll find a way to incorporate the darkness in the story that they're making, which is the use everything piece. And so. When I wrote about this first, I wrote another book before this one, which was called Everything's an Offer, which, by the way, is the three- or four-word version of the six words, if that's too long. So that sort of sums up all the practices, if you like, because to regard anything and everything that happens as an offer, which means to an improviser, something you can take and use, has all the other ideas packed into it. But when I wrote that first book, I was really moved by the fact that five or six people took the trouble to write to me the book didn't have a very large audience, so five or six people seemed like quite a significant number, to say that it had helped them through a period of anxiety or depression or instability of quite serious kinds. And that wasn't my intention at all. So that's kind of like an audience member exacting my ideas about improvisation for use in a kind of, you know, for their own purposes in a moment of mental health crisis – and one of them said, it's not that your book is positive, it's that it is constructive. And I thought that was really interesting. This idea that these practices help you to construct, to build, to move forward, to take action rather than adding, as it were, a kind of valence of good or bad or it feeling good or bad to anything, which is kind of the complete opposite. I think what people expect, they expect it to be all happy clappy and all that kind of stuff. And in some people's eyes, it can be that, but I don't think. It's Certainly, that's not what it's about for me. And I love your thought about everything's acceptation. I think that's probably right. I'm going to think about that more. But certainly, with this kind of philosophy in mind, anything and everything that happens is taken and used. And rarely is it used in the way that would have been expected, imagined, or planned. And yet, often, it will work out somehow better. You know, so a literal example of that, I'll never forget, playing a game in a in a workshop at the side business school at Oxford. And I won't try and render the, all the details of the game, but it became clear at one point that somebody hadn't understood the instructions that I'd issued. They were meant to turn around and watch somebody and they didn't. And so the whole thing got literally stuck. And I was leaning against the wall of this room and I could feel the eyes of the 30 or so people in the room sort of look at me because I'm in a position of authority. And they're like, "Oh, is this going right? Is this going well? And I felt myself move forward off the wall. I felt judgment kick in and go, oh God, I didn't do that very well. This isn't working. And all of that happens in a nanosecond. And then I don't know what shifted, but probably something emotional, or physical. And it somehow occurred to me that I didn't have to do that, that what was happening might be quite interesting, that we might actually be able to use that. And so I just leant back against the wall and kind of smiled and I could feel the whole room relaxed now they didn't know what was going to happen any more than I did but they were kind of looking at me and they kind of went well he seems cool with it and of course what happened was the woman never turned around this was a sort of message passing game a series of physical messages. she never turned around to see what was the message she was meant to pass the guy who was trying to pass it to her got bored and kind of gave up and left and then somebody farther down the line just made something up And the game was completed in a spooky kind of way. What person made up and they really hadn't been looking was pretty much like what the message had been. And then, and this is where it all starts to pay off, the conversation we had then about communication and leadership and error was so much richer for the experience that we'd had than if everything had gone, quote unquote, in the way I'd expected according to plan. And so that's another example of, kind of live exaptation, like something really interesting happened. I and the group took what happened and used it in a way that hadn't been expected. And that's what keeps me doing this. When these things happen, I call them the jumping up and down moments for the simple reason that I get so excited by the fit, almost in a sort of biological sense, that sort of beauty of a perfect fit that I kind of literally jump up and down. And I think that one of the proofs of when you see something that's kind of completely fitting, not perfect, but fitting, I think that's often evidence that something has been improvised because it's so hard to make things fit. There's a particular hallmark to it, I think, that you learn to recognize that, You know, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about the two mentalities, that I think the mentality that if something fits really well, it must be planned is almost completely wrong. I think if something fits really beautifully, it's almost certainly improvised. Or if it is planned or scripted, it takes a huge amount of work. I mean, look how long it takes to write a movie script to make it seem natural, normal, and improvised in an everyday way, if it's a a realistic kind of series of dialogues between recognizable characters. And that takes me back to my intention way back, you know, which is like, if we can just get that If we can click into that way of being and working, then all this kind of, not just order, but delight and beauty and novelty and value comes for free or comes along for the ride. It's never quite free, but it comes along. And that kind of ferments and cements the relationships amongst the people because we're always doing this together. It's never a solo creation.
1: And that is just the biggest rush ever. Speaking of the biggest rush ever, there's this lovely passage here. Practice asks something different of you. It encourages you to engage as a whole person, not just a rational mind, in an intuitive way. It welcomes all of you to the game. It recognizes and values information that is gathered via feel, bodily sensation, posture, and movement. It generates sensuous knowledge, not book learning. It values speed, responsiveness, and fit over accuracy, precision, or regularity. It gives precedence to creating a flow of ideas and energy rather than arriving at answers. It is a living example of the scientific insight that the very simple behavior or rules can quickly generate creative complexity. So, again, I'm just standing outside imagining in to this. It strikes me that really what you're doing is basically almost Budic <laughs> in your interventions that you're getting into these places and saying with your silver tongue, we're going to improve your bottom lines by paying more attention, by being more in your body. And I find that really beautiful and it shouldn't feel as mischievous or provocative as it does.
0: Well, it should, I agree it shouldn't, but I think it does because I think that this is still very remote and arcane territory for the vast majority of people in, in organizations, not just the corporate world, but all organizations. It's so far removed from the way we've been educated. You know, to me, this is one of the blind spots you talked about Jung earlier, you know, the, the shadow side, if you like, of our success at manipulation and control of physical material that goes all the way back to Newton and the Enlightenment you know, that we've come to mistake that capacity control as a kind of useful capacity, we've come to understand it as the way things are. And I don't think that's true. But it's been so successful, at at least one level. And that's not to be sneezed at, you know, that's, that's extraordinary what we as a society have been able to create, but it creates the shadow side, this blind spot, where we think that that's the way things are, that's the way to do things. And so, for those that are able to see it, they realize uh, how mischievous, under, underneath the mischief, there's quite a deep point. Some are oblivious to it. What's hilarious, of course, is I've also worked in Buddhist monasteries. And this kind of work can be a challenge to them as well. In fact, the only place I've ever had to stop the game for fear of violence was in a Buddhist monastery in California. So that was really interesting to me. And I think that's to do with you know outward forms. You know, institutions of any kind, monasteries or otherwise, can still kind of get locked into patterns and form that aren't sympathetic to, they might kind of sound like they're spirited, but they might actually be dead, if you see what I mean. So, this can happen anywhere in the same way that you can find groups of people in organizations who are kind of operating on a different plane, you know, in small groups, perhaps. <laughs> So yeah, so it is quite, quite Buddhist. And and actually, the reason I ended up working at it was Tassahara I was working at one summer was through meeting Edward S.B. Brown, who I met in the UK on a cooking course. And we kind of noticed some of the similarities in the language that is used. So he was talking about acceptance in the Buddhist way of things. And of course, accepting to take offers as given is piece of the improv practice as well. So there's a lot of connections to the sort of Buddhist way of thinking are kind of woven into this, and I think some people some people spot that, but you don't need to it's not necessary
1: so I want to pay the horseman his due and carry us across the river to the question of time and of situating yourself in time and just ask from being someone who is thoroughly steeped you know the tea bag is one with the the vessel and the water and all of this how do you experience time now how has years and years of engagement with this framing or deframing changed you and changed the way that you understand the passage of time and the structure of time.
0: Uh yeah, the, God, that's a really interesting question. I think after I wrote that book, I wrote a book about pause which is explicitly about time and our relationship to time and and the one did lead to the other. It came about because what I started to notice is that skilled well people who came across my work would often say, oh, I couldn't do that because I can't think fast enough. So there's this association and assumption that improvising well meant being able to think fast. And I knew from my own experience, but also from working with some very accomplished performers, that that is not the case. That's not how this works. That's not what people do, even on stage. It might be thinking Jim, but not as we know it. It's certainly not about cognition or cerebral stuff. And so there's this big assumption out there. So I actually, I thought, well, I wonder if you could force some slowness into the process. So I decided to kind of run on what would be an R&D workshop, I guess, with a whole bunch of just friends in London who came along to see if we could introduce, in for some novice improvisers, introduce a slowness of pausing into the exercises and, and games. And, uh, it really didn't work. It was incredibly clunky and stupid, maybe because I wasn't very good at side coaching. I don't know. But what it did throw up was this conversation around pausing in particular and what is a pause and how long is a pause and how do you know when you're in one and is it the same as about a million interesting questions. And in the pub afterwards, because you always have to go to the pub afterwards, three people quite separately who hadn't spoken together and didn't know each other came up to me and said, when's the book coming out? So that was a kind of invitation to write what became a book about pausing i'd actually finished the book about pausing before i noticed that the subtitle of do improvise is less push more pause uh you know a new and different approach to life and work or something so clearly that kind of relationship was in there even if i wasn't perceiving it very clearly or being very quick on the uptake so how i think about it's funny you should mention this today because i i woke up this morning and in that sort of somnolent dreamy state before coming fully awake, I had a whole series of thoughts about this. And I, the phrase that captured it was, time is swirling around me. To me, I think now time is decoupled from the dictates of the clock, if you like, that always open to and looking for those moments where it sort of deepens or extends. I'm not very interested in squeezing it. There's a lovely phrase uh, from a German journalist called Stefan Klein, which is, if we give more life to our time, we give more time to our lives. And he doesn't mean more minutes, although he may mean that too, I don't know. But just this idea that time is much more elastic and flexible than we realize. And that in many ways, it seems to me what we've done is subject ourselves to a sort of very mechanical interpretation of time. And our devices and our technology reinforce that for us constantly constantly. I wrote a blog post years ago called Dictatorship of Diaries. It was an invitation to the toolmakers of the world to try and invent some form of timekeeping tool that wasn't a line chopped into bits, because that's what they all are of different natures. You know, there's different ways of chopping a line into bits or different size bits or different colored bits. So for me, this idea of time as being kind of loopy and baggy and elastic and not all the same is kind of how I think of an experience time and and when I get stressed and anxious and feel like I've got too much to do and I find myself rushing around one of my mantras is there's time for everything which I often say out loud actually if I'm really stressed and interestingly I don't say that if I don't feel I am stressed I think what that does for me is remind me that time is as much in me as it is anywhere out there and to tie this back to improvisation there are examples I can think of where a group of people are making a story together out of order in a kind of improvised game. And there might be a huge amount of stuff there. And it doesn't make sense. And the whole thing is verging on that chaos you talked of earlier. And then somebody just takes a moment and adds the word and in a particular place, and suddenly it all makes sense. So that addition of a tiny piece changes the the sense of all the work we've done previously and the time it took. And yet it took kind of no time. So I don't know if that's an answer, but that that's what I was thinking about this morning as I woke up about time being swirling and looping and baggy rather than kind of tight and ticked and
1: marked. I love it. I love it. (laughs) I, (laughs) I, I want to ask one more question of you. I mean, frankly, I feel like I could just play in this with you forever. But the capstone here is about the future, beings in the future. How do you put it here, you say? In talking about communication as a two-way process, as opposed to propaganda. I really appreciated this. Many people misunderstand they conflate these by that there's an active listening involved in speaking even to an invisible or in this case, unborn audience and thinking about your work in time in dialogue with the unborn. I'd love to hear you just reflect on that and maybe we can listen deeply enough to actually hear what they have to say to us. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Let's see. I mean, I think I would
0: cherish the hope, I think, that in the future, this period of constraint and tightness and it's not a word I like very much, but sort of effortful or efforting kind of squeezing, you know, that that in the fullness of time, humans will find a way to kind of re- return to organic ways of being. Return is a hazardous word because I don't mean looping back in a circle. Hopefully it will be helical, but to a place where, The example I like is, you know, if you think of a human in a stream of of water, perhaps quite a turbulent stream, it's not sort of about swimming against the stream, that feels like what we're doing now, but that we find find ways to be and honour and cherish and develop in our education, in our schooling, in our workplaces, in our families, in our associations, this kind of ability to kind of swim and duck and dive and move. So we still got tension and freedom, it's still banded, the river has banks, it's flowing in a particular direction, but that will create a society where, where we're able to reconnect with that sort of organic way of being that is so effective. It's so extraordinarily fruitful and productive. I think we barely begun to scratch the surface of this. It's very recent news that we've all got an ecosystem in us which is completely unique if somewhat shared with our cohabitants called our microbiome. I was reading an article in Eon magazine recently that got me thinking about, God, I wonder if the search for how the brain works is actually deeply flawed because maybe our whole brain function is as individual as our microbiome is it's very recent news to us and we understand very little about how forests talk to each other and send information as well as nutrients and that they're all symbionts with the micro rhizomes that live on their root systems. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on. And all of that is doing all of that without a plan. So it's according to certain principles and there are patterns that we can spot and there's tons of data we can analyze. But I would hope for us that we are able to create a way of like I say, living and working and playing, which is much more harmonious and joyful. You know, and, you know, what if instead of everybody being a creative artist, this'll, this'll strike a chord with you. You know, instead of having to paint hats and make music and release podcasts to make money, we can create a society where actually there's a kind of a web of affluence that's available to everybody and people can make more of it if that's what they want to spend their time doing. But that people are creative artists to be creative artists and they don't sell their wares in order to make a living because the living's already there for them or that we're somehow together. I've got no idea how this works, but but that's to, to me what it feels like we could aspire to. I'll never forget, actually, I was, many, many years ago, I saw a, one of the early Star Trek movies. I think it was called First Contact where... The first scene was set in a forest and they lived in kind of like tubby bunkers under the ground and wore fur coats and everything. And This was such a different vision of the future to a kind of Blade Runner, glass and steel, aluminium kind of future. I was really struck by it. I can't remember anything about the rest of the movie. That was our high-tech future, a kind of return to organics in a much more organic way and that we, like the person swimming in the river, it's not that we're just like early humans – harvesting the beneficence of what nature had already provided that we're in this kind of dance of dialogue with the natural systems around us but in a way that is co-creative that would be the mega improvisation that we consciously engage in kind of acts of co-creation with the whole of the biological world and i can't help but go back to one of the phrases that's stuck with me most from any book i've ever read which is kevin kelly's out of control which i still find hard to believe was written in the early 90s where he says that when things get complicated enough or complex enough, when we cross beyond billionics into what he calls zillionics, the only logic that works is biologic, in other words, biology, and that the distinction between the born and the made then starts to erode. And so I suppose maybe I'm still just echoing Kevin, but it seems to me that if you like the practice of improvisation or a way of making manifest and simple and useful and practical, some of these kind of biological principles and so that if we could live more in accordance with those we could have this kind of future where we weren't in struggle or combat either with ourselves or with the world around us but we were in kind of constant creative exaptive flow hallelujah
1: (laughs) i don't know if that even addressed your question but it was where my mind went oh no oh no that was that was for sure the cherry on top okay uh yeah that's it really any thoughts in parting
0: Uh, well just i mean i was teasing you as we began about you know you can't have had much sleep uh, because we Uh were we're in different time zones and you know we were communicating via email not that many hours ago and it's all been part of the same day for me but i was really enjoying the tired michael garfield um just the pausing and the thoughtfulness and the kind of i mean i'm attributing that to tiredness it may be just how you were choosing to be with me today i don't know but it felt very spacious and very relaxed and and i really enjoyed that it's not normally how one feels in these conversations a certain frenesi uh to them sometimes um so thank you for that
1: well thank you for your willingness to engage on this wavelength. Oh yeah.
0: joy. And uh yeah, thanks in absentia to Chris Katana as well for the original introduction. And um Indeed. Yeah. And uh well I hope to hope one day to meet you in person.
1: <laughs> Which would be How fabulous. am Hopefully. I going to get to spain i gotta get yeah. the whole family to spain well we should
0: we'll uh it out, you we'll know it out. we should figure that out you know I often people say to me oh you know this whole your whole shtick does that mean you know i like having goals and i'm like well so do i i just uh there's nothing wrong with having a goal it's how you hold it and uh well certainly from my perspective that's that would be the idea of having you—I wish I could show you. I'll send you a link, actually, to the drone film of the place if I haven't already. Because the place that we're lucky enough to have access to for these events is just mind-bending. You'll enjoy this, but it—it's so it's—it's it's old, it's beautiful, fine, you know. Yeah, we get that, but it, I discovered not that many years ago that this property, which my wife's family bought almost a century ago now, actually of some impoverished aristocrats. A few centuries before that, it was bought by a guy called Lorenzo de Cepeda, who was recently enriched returning from the Americas. And it was he bought it at the request of his sister who needed provisions for her monastery. And of course, this place is six kilometers south of the ancient city of Avila in Spain. And the sister in question was the great mystic saint, St. Teresa of Avila. And so it turns out that this extraordinary woman had some of her extraordinary mystic visions in the vicinity, if not on the property itself. And so nobody really knows or cares about that, but it entertains me because it makes me feel that there's a backdrop, you know, that I'm fascinated by what humans leave in places, as well as what they respond to. So maybe she was responding to something to something in the place but also what has that left what fields however obscure you talked to me once about you know extraterrestrials being visitations from other times not other places you know and this is a kind of human version of that what if uh, st teresa and her mysticism is still there
1: in the ether <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, perfect, perfect places. Yeah, thank you. So,
0: well, all right, well, look, um, great to talk with you, and uh, let me know if you need anything else. And um, yeah, we'll talk yeah. soon. I
1: hope. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future then avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon.